This message is brought to you by Trinity Community Church in Cary, North Carolina, where we love God, love others, and make disciples of Jesus. For more information, check out www.tritrinity.org. Thanks for listening. Jesus speaks to his church. And hopefully you got the implication that these are letters that John, the Apostle John, wrote, uh, writing down the words of Jesus to these seven churches in Asia Minor, which is what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. But they are also letters to all of the church. All of the scripture is intended for uh, all of the church. Um, And so uh, we're looking at these next five weeks, what Jesus says to his church. And that's called the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3 specifically. Now, before I lose your attention when I say the words Revelation, let me demystify it for you. Uh, The Greek word that is the title for the book of Revelation is called apocalypsis, or transliterated from the Greek apocalypsis. And so that's where we get the English word apocalypse. And so uh, when we hear the word apocalypse, maybe we just think of a a movie where, you know, the, the characters are facing the end of the world. Uh, But really, the word apocalypse means revelation or revealing or unveiling. And so you see in verse 19 of chapter 1, the Lord tells John, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. That's a summary of the book of Revelation right there. Write down the things that are, and also the things that are to take place. So to demystify it a little bit, it is really a revealing of what is to come. So the apocalyptic literature does not simply mean the end of the world. It means unveiling or revealing. And so Revelation, Jesus, through the Apostle John, is unveiling to us what is and what is also to come. So then you might say, well, what's the point? I mean, I can read the rest of the Bible without really understanding the book of Revelation. I mean, I I probably won't be around for all of these events to take place anyway. Well, I'm glad you asked. Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, excuse me, verse 42, Jesus says, stay awake, talking about the end times and the tribulation. Stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And he also says, be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So in addition to staying ready, here are five beneficial things that I think we can gain from looking at uh, the doctrine of the end times. If we can go to that next uh, slide. Five benefits of studying Revelation. When When you study the end times, the Greek word for end times in the New Testament is eschaton. So when people talk about eschatology, that means the study of the end times. First of all, comfort and encouragement. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul is talking about the return of Christ, he gives a description of the return of Christ, and then he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, encourage one another with these words. That's one benefit of looking at the end times. Secondly, a greater hunger to be in the presence of Christ. As Daniel mentioned, in, in, as we were between the songs, we were talking about this scene of heavenly worship where these, these uh, creatures fall down before the throne, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
And so Revelation should give us a greater hunger to be in the presence of God. And Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 says, We wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. We wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. So it should increase our eagerness, our hunger. Thirdly, uh, looking at the end times gives us an exhortation to live upright lives. I think we always need an exhortation to live upright lives. But uh, the fact that we will all be stand before God in the end uh, does give us an exhortation to live upright lives. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14 says, Since you are waiting, since you are waiting for the end times, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Fourthly, readiness and not alarm. Boy, do we need that, don't we? I think. One of the benefits of looking at the end times is to say, okay, I need to be ready, I need to be prepared, but I don't need to be in alarm because, spoiler alert, we know who wins. Jesus wins and Satan loses. Now, there's going to be a lot of turmoil before he returns, but we should have a sense of readiness and not alarm. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 8 says, Since we belong to the day, let us remain sober. Let us remain sober, being, being ready, being clear-minded, uh, and not being in a sense of panic or alarm. And lastly, a, another benefit of studying Revelation is that there is joy that will sustain us because we know the final outcome. Again, 1 Peter chapter 4, Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Rejoice as you share in his suffering, so you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Isn't that a fascinating picture in chapter 1 that his face was shining like the sun? I mean, the disciples, Peter, James, and John, got a, got a, a little bit of a glimpse of that when Jesus went up on the mountain. Uh, what's called the transfiguration, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became as white as any cleaner could bleach them, basically, is what the Greek text says. And his face was white, and, his, and he, there was a brightness about him that was the glory of God. And then in chapter 1, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. That's a wonderful picture of the return of Christ, because we can be prepared for his judgment. We don't face the condemnation of God, because we are in Christ. Amen? And so for all those whose names are written in the book of life, we do not have to face his sword of judgment. Now, the book of Revelation, it's very easy to understand. All you have to do is memorize this chart right here. I think we have a slide of it. Okay, so there it is. If you spend your time memorizing that, you'll know everything. Uh, it's actually, some of these charts are, are pretty fascinating. Um, or just memorize this next one. I think it's a little easier. That one there, it's got the top and bottom, you know, they filled it in there with the different arrows. And actually, this third one actually has some pretty good artwork. I was uh, fascinated by that. Um, and so, of course, remember that any chart of Revelation looking at the end times is usually that one particular individual's interpretation. 
Uh, I have yet to see a, a, a good chart that has all the different interpretations on it. But, um, but usually when you look at those things, it's one particular interpretation. So then the question is, well, if it's hard to understand, what do Christians agree upon? And uh, that's what we tried to summarize in doing our unison reading, is that what, what do Christians agree upon about the end time? So let's look at a couple of things here. And you might want to jot these down. Christians agree that Jesus will return personally, bodily, and in great power and in glory. In Acts chapter 1, I, th I believe the uh, angel says to the disciples, this same Jesus who you saw ascend into heaven will return. So, so we are expecting him to return personally, bodily, in his resurrected body, and in great power and glory. Secondly, prior to Jesus' return, there will be a great tribulation. So you read Matthew chapter 24. Uh, that's the most extensive uh, passage in the New Testament on that. Um, and you'll, you'll see some details of some of these signs may have happened already. Some of these signs are still about to happen. And, and uh, Jesus says at one point, he says, well, this is the beginning of the birth pangs. And then there's more tribulation and then there's a great tribulation. So there will be a lot of tribulation. Thirdly, the Antichrist will make himself known and deceive many. And then fourthly, Satan, Antichrist, and all the wicked will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire. Fifthly, Christians agree that God's people will be with him in the new heaven, new earth, and the new Jerusalem, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, the big debate becomes then, well, where exactly will people be during the tribulation, during this, this great tribulation prior to when Jesus returns? And that's where Christians uh, disagree. Uh, there are many Christians who believe that the church will be what is called raptured. The church will be taken up. Uh, the Christians will be taken up off the earth. And then during that seven-year tribulation period, uh, God uh, focuses his, his plan on the nation of Israel. Uh, there's other folks who believe uh, that, uh, that Christians will be raptured after the tribulation. And so there will be a great rapture, and then Christians will be with the Lord, and then we will return to the earth to reign with the Lord in the millennial kingdom. So there's a lot of different interpretations there and questions about that that we're not going to go into um, in this series. So we're just, we're just warming up here. We're just warming up. So hopefully this is like your revelation calisthenics. Just think of it that way, all right? So why are there so many different views? Well, there's, uh, here's a summary of different approaches to the book of Revelation. And now, uh, remember, apocalyptic literature is supposed to be, is meant to be symbolic. So if you read portions of Daniel, the later portions of Daniel and uh, portions of Ezekiel, that's also apocalyptic literature. It's intended to be symbolic, Okay. So one approach is the preterist approach. The majority of what is spoken about in Revelation has already happened in the first century. And so they would look at a lot of the upheaval in the different chapters of Revelation and say, well, we think a lot of that has already been fulfilled, but there's only certain things that will have yet to be fulfilled. That's one view. The historicist view, which is a little bit different, says that, well, Revelation is an overall inspired forecast of the whole of human history until the second coming of Christ. Well, that's a novel view, but the people that these letters were written to in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, how would they have any idea of that? Uh, they wouldn't have any idea of the whole of human history 
from their, from their first century view. And so that, that's an appealing option uh, because it, it, it does give you a grand scope of things, but it's, it's not, uh, not my preferred option in terms of looking at the book of Revelation. Thirdly, the futurist view would say, okay, aside from the early chapters, chapters 1 through 3, Revelation concerns what happens at the end of the age. It is a forecast of the last days, not, not forecasting all of human history, uh, but forecasting uh, the last days specifically. And then fourthly is the idealist view that says, well, Revelation sets out in poetic form the cosmic battle between good and evil and the principles upon which God acts through human history. And so that view is not as concerned with specifics. Now, just by looking at those four, you can probably tell that most interpretations of Revelation have bits and pieces from each of those four views. If you took a historicist view and you said, well, Revelation is a picture of the whole of human history, and then you're living in 1942 in Germany, what would you think? Or in France, you would think, well, Hitler is the Antichrist, the, the beast that's talked about in Revelation. So there is an aspect in which every generation has to grapple with, are we in the, we may be in the midst of the Great Tribulation. It doesn't, doesn't seem like it to me directly, but the way things in the Middle East are lining up and the, the way history is going around the world uh, can be, can be uh, we, have to, we have to wrestle with that. So there's always an element of that uh, as you look at the book of Revelation. Uh, and so if we can go to the next slide, here's where we're starting in chapters 2 and 3. There were seven churches. If you look at number one on the map there, that's Ephesus, which is right on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And you'll see the uh, black dot in the middle is the island of Patmos, uh, where John was exiled to. And so this is what uh, John is writing these letters to these seven different churches. I think it's likely also that the seven letters would have been compiled and distributed to the seven churches. So the church in Smyrna probably knew what was written to the church in Philadelphia and vice versa. It's, I think it's likely that the, the, uh, the letters were read by the other churches as well. Well, what's the main focus? What do you need to remember? You don't need to remember this whole paragraph. Just remember the emphasis of it as I read it for you. The future belongs not to the Roman emperor, nor to any human potentate or ecclesiastic. No political ruler or no uh, uh, church ruler. The future does not belong to any of those. And we can include in those any world ruler now or in the future or any future or present presidential candidate. The future does not belong to them. It belongs to no man or group of men, but to Christ. Amen? The Christ who was crucified for the salvation of us all. It is he who can open the book of human destiny, which is the scroll in Revelation chapter 5, verse 3. All of us and the destiny of all of us are in his hands. This is recognized by the highest heaven, by all the angels, and eventually by all that live. This look behind the scenes brings John's readers a glimpse of the realities of power. Real power rests with Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
The appearances may be against us for the present, meaning present appearances, present tribulation. But ultimate reality is not dependent on present appearances. I thought that was a really good, good summary. The future belongs to Christ. The point of Revelation is the point of the first song that we sung this morning. There is victory in Jesus. Jesus brings the victory. Jesus is the one who reigns. Now, what is Jesus doing now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father, as Scripture says. He is interceding for us, as Scripture says. But also note that Jesus is right now walking among the seven lampstands of the seven churches. He is walking among his churches. He is intimately concerned for his church. So the seven lampstands represent the seven churches. Uh, Some people have speculated that the angels of the seven churches are uh, the pastors or the leaders of those churches. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what to think about that. But but the point here is, is that Jesus is dwelling among his church, like Jeff mentioned at the beginning of the service. Jesus is present with us when we gather in his name. And so Ephesus was an important city in the ancient world. It was the seat of the proconsular government. And so it was known for its temple built to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. Uh, It was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. And actually in Acts chapter 19, I'll just read this short portion for you. The local economy was disrupted when the gospel took hold in the city of Ephesus. If you want to turn to Acts chapter 19, Paul spends time in Ephesus, and uh, the gospel message takes hold, and there's this guy named Demetrius who is a silversmith, and it says in Acts chapter 19, he made silver shrines of Artemis, and he brought no little business to the craftsmen of the town. And so what does he do when the gospel message starts spreading? It says, These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And so Demetrius got the whole town riled up, and they made trouble for Paul because they wanted to make money off their silver uh, shrines that they were making of Artemis. And so it was a very uh, well-known city. In Acts chapter 20, Paul gives his farewell to the Ephesian elders, indicating that they themselves will have to deal with false teachers in their congregations. And by church tradition, it was also the home of uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, after the apostle John uh, took her into his home and took care of her. Uh, And that that seems to make sense uh, because uh, John was then exiled to Patmos, which is Uh, close uh, to an island close to Ephesus. But I believe today that there's still a a, uh, structure in Ephesus, which is by church tradition is known to be uh, the home of uh, Mary, Jesus' mother. 
So what are we going to focus on today? We're going to focus on three, three things that this text gives us. Three things that this text gives us. It gives us a fact, it gives us a rebuke, and it gives us a warning. So first of all, for the fact, I'll start in verse 2. These are the words of Jesus to the church. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So verses 2 and 3, there's the fact. What's the fact? If I were to put it in my own words, I'd say, Jesus is saying, I know the hard work that you put in to practice faith seriously. I would like to be known as someone who takes Jesus seriously. I need to remember not to take myself too seriously, but I want to be known as someone who wants to take Jesus seriously. Amen? And so that was the fact. He's saying, look, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. Jesus knows for every one of us, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows the time, the concentration, the effort, the inconvenience, the planning that it takes for you to do every single thing you do, and especially the things that you do in his name. Isn't that comforting? That Jesus knows all of that? None of those details are overlooked by Jesus in our lives. He knows that the conflict that the Ephesians had with these false apostles, that they were tested in some fashion and found false. In verse uh, uh, 6, it says, Yet this you have, he's commending them again. He says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, that was a group that was somehow off track. Uh, it's, uh, it's possible that the Nicolaitans were a sect, a, a group that was, that was an offshoot of uh, one of the first deacons, Nicholas, in Acts chapter 6. And so he may have gotten off track, and, and they were, were off track in some sense. Uh, probably they were allowing some sort of immorality that was against uh, the scriptures. And so they went astray for making, making an allowance for that immorality, and the Ephesians had to deal with it and correct it. I mean, if I wanted my reputation as a Christian to be, I cannot bear with those who are evil, that would be a pretty good reputation, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I, I think I would, I would agree with that. That would be a, quite a compliment. Wouldn't you want that also? So the fact is, Jesus knows all of the effort, all of the hard work, all of the, the, the uh, devotion that we put into practicing our faith seriously. But with every strength, there always comes an accompanying weakness. And so here's the rebuke. I have this against you. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Isn't it interesting that God humbles us? He says, here's all these things I know about you. Four sentences. <laughs> and then with one sentence, he says, I have this against you. <laughs> God does that to me a lot, you know. Uh, my prayers will be kind of rehearsing like, Lord, I, I did this and I did this and I tried my hardest here and this and that and the other thing. And, and God is saying, you know, yes, yes, I know all that. And then he'll put one verse in front of me and go, <laughs> that humbled me pretty quickly. Here's the rebuke. 
An overemphasis on hard work and right ministry causes a person to lose focus on Christ. You can lose focus. The rebuke is, oh, I have a typo there. You have lost focus on me by focusing more on hard work and right ministry. They were devoted. They had dealt with false teachers. They had dealt with the Nicolaitans. Maybe the church had to make some statement and say, you know, we, we are differentiating ourselves from this group that is teaching something false. But he says, you have abandoned the love that you had at first. One of the things I enjoy about the Evangelical Free Church, one of their, their uh, core values, uh, one of their distinctives, I think they call it, is that we believe in the rational and the relational dimension of the Christian faith. And that's meant to say we believe in the the thinking side of the Christian faith and the reasoning side and the logic side, but we also believe in the relational side of the Christian faith because the Scripture talks about both. Scripture talks about right doctrine and right teaching and, and following commands, and the Scripture also, Jesus says, abide in me, abide in me, abide in my word. And the Psalms are full of that that relational element of, Lord, I cry out to you. Lord, I'm pouring my heart out to you. And so it, it makes me think about when we instruct children, do we spend more time telling them what not to do, or do we spend time helping them cultivate positive habits? I think our default would be, well, don't do this. Stay away from this. This, you know, don't make the same mistake I made kind of thing. I can remember we were teaching our kids the Ten Commandments, and uh, I don't know how we came up with it, but we, we said, well, we want to we teach our kids, you know, the basics of the Ten Commandments, and then we, we came up with a list of, I think, four or five things that were sort of included in the Ten Commandments, like, you know, listen to mom and dad, uh, you know, uh, if we ask you to do something, go ahead and do it, you know. And so we, we, I retitled them on the refrigerator, God's Guide for My Good. God's Guide for My Good. And it was my attempt to try to rephrase the Ten Commandments as, you know, this is God's guide for your good. So the same thing can happen in the church when we spend a lot of time focusing on what to avoid. Now, certainly the scriptures tell us what to avoid. Do not lie. Do not steal. Rid yourself of all malice and gossip and slander. But if we have an unhealthy enjoyment of pointing out what is wrong, we lose our love for Christ. If we have an unhealthy enjoyment of pointing out what is wrong, we lose our own love for Christ and we lose the heart of Jesus for people. And I think that's especially tempting. That's a, especially a temptation in churches that already emphasize more teaching and more doctrine. You go to a church that's much more expressive in their worship and uh, maybe different cultural setting and much more uh, emotionally focused, uh, maybe that's not as much of a temptation to lose that love for Christ. It's possible, but it seems that, that the strengths of different churches sometimes also become the same weaknesses. And so Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, we're not told. Uh, I think we can safely assume that that's love for Christ. Love for Christ, love for neighbor. Um, 
It doesn't specify there, but I think he's talking about love for him. And so that's the temptation that we face. So what's the warning then? The warning is repent and demonstrate your love for me. Otherwise, the church is in danger. Notice he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Unless you repent. Pastor Jeremy Wrightbowl uh, wrote uh, a, seri- uh, a book on the seven letters uh, to the churches, and he personalizes them to the pastor. And he says, The pastor or the person who has lost his first love gradually has less and less to say about Jesus and more and more to say about himself. Boy, that's, that's, that's true, isn't it? Now, we see a beautiful example of our love for Christ, of an individual's love for Christ. Look at John the Baptist in John chapter 3. Because there's a dispute about who's doing ministry the right way. And John chapter 3, some of these uh, discussions arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So they're saying, Jesus is baptizing over here. What's what's the deal? All are going to him. John's answer, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I have said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Isn't that a wonderful example of his love for Christ? Pointing to Christ, saying, no, I'm I'm just the one that was sent to point to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do we remember the hunger that we had for prayer and for scripture when we first came to Jesus? Do we remember the boldness that God gave us when we wanted to share Christ's love to our friends? Do we remember the love we showed to strangers when we asked Jesus to burden our hearts for the least of these, and he directed us to someone that very day or that very week? Do we remember when the Holy Spirit interrupted our day and told us, I want you to go to talk to that person and offer to pray with them? Do we remember being brought to our knees when we pondered the love of Christ, going to the cross on our behalf and saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. It's a real danger, isn't it? To do the mechanics of ministry, to be satisfied with the, the uh, doing ministry the right way or, or having a, a certain... Uh, principles and whatnot, but not having that love for Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Gives us a picture of that love. What does, what does the Apostle Paul say? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. It's really the same thing that Jesus is saying to his church. He says, you have lost your first love. And so all of the, all of the ministry things and all of the things that we could plan or all of the things that, that we can say, oh, this is, this is a good thing. Well, yes, they are good things. But let's not, let's not forget our first love. Let's not forget where our devotion lies to Jesus. Because his promise, look at his promise. It says that I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God to the one who conquers. And you say, well, boy, I hope I conquer. If you are in Christ, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you have confessed your sin and repented, meaning, meaning turned away from your sin and turned back to Jesus and said, Lord, I accept your forgiveness. Your forgiveness is so good, I cannot help but receive it. It means everything to me. If you are in Christ, you are a conqueror. The scripture says in Romans, we are more than conquerors through what? Through our hard work? No, through him who loved us, amen? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if you are in Christ, you are a conqueror in Christ, and he will grant to eat of the tree of life. This is a hard word because, well, how do you measure love for Jesus? I mean, it'd be nice if you had it, you know, on your smartwatch or whatever. You know, how's my love for Jesus day? Ooh, I'm in the green zone. Ooh, I'm in the bright yellow. Ooh, I'm in the red zone. Look at that. It's going up. It'd be nice if we had that. Let me finish with these lyrics. The old hymn, My Jesus, I Love Thee. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. You know, there's a kind of love when we say I love something. There's a kind of love where it's like, I'm really excited I get this. <laughs> you know, you see that at Christmas time where it's like, I got the thing that I wanted. But then there's another kind of love that, is, that brings you to tears. That you're so joyful. But you, you're undeserving. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. I'll love thee in life, and I will love thee in death, and praise thee as long as, long as thou lendest me breath. And say when the death dew lies cold on my brow, if ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. Boy, we can't love Jesus in our own strength, can we? We need him to do a work in our hearts. Let's pray.